Welcome again to Steelcast. In Series 1, we talked to leaders across Tata Steel in the UK about the impact of the coronavirus and the restrictions governments were putting in place and how that was affecting our markets, our customers, our people and our suppliers. These modern-day giants of the UK steel industry talked us through the measures they were taking to manage their way through the lockdown and how our steel heroes across the land were responding, the first R, to keep our people safe and our business running. In Series 2, we've been talking to those people who are down the middle of the next R, recovery. We talked to Kevin Edgar about the prospects for the automotive industry and Paul White about the construction industry that seems to be leading the recovery. We talked to Tor Farquhar about how the company has been managing its people through this period and what we might see next. And then Ernst Tuganes about how the UK operations have coped with seismic shifts in demand patterns and how they're preparing for any upturn. Today's recovery podcast is slightly different, albeit about a topic that could have no less effect on the UK steel industry than the pandemic. A topic which has elicited as many emotions, opinions and arguments as any other in a generation, and that is Brexit. I'm delighted to be joined today by someone who is no stranger to podcasts, having recently starred in our Women in Steel series. Deirdre Fox is not only Director of Strategic Business Development, she's also our resident expert on Brexit. Deirdre, a very warm welcome to the pod to you. Many thanks, Tim, and great to be here. And I guess with only 63 days to go until the end of the transition period on 31st of December, it's a timely discussion to be having, really. It is indeed. And as you say, it's not very long to go. And I guess before we get into the details of uh, how we're preparing for Brexit and what's likely to happen, my first question to you is more of a personal one, really, Deirdre, which is how did you manage to get shackled with Brexit in the first place? Yeah, no, good question. And, and you're not the first one to say, how did that poison chalice land with you? Um well, I suppose the first thing, I've always loved to challenge, and I guess most business is, is actually about solving problems. I think the second is a lot of my career has actually been around, um, has been on the international side of our business, um, both as you know head of our energy sector for a while, uh, working our, in our sort of international trading and projects business for many, many years. Um, and then the recent work I've been doing, dealing with external stakeholders, customers, uh, politicians and others. And what I've got to see is just over many years, the impact of sort of political and economic changes on our business and, and how interlinked they all are. Um, and I don't won't go on too long, but I mean, if you you know look back to the 90s when, you know, Russia started changing globally, what sort of impact did that have on us? Um, and and then, you know, the growth of the steel sector, steel manufacturing in China, that had a huge impact on us. And I yeah. guess it is another seismic change in the way the global world is organised. So, you know, let's we've dealt with it before. Let's deal with it again. It is an extraordinary challenge. And we will get into some of that detail. And, uh, you, you know, I think it has, people have talked about little else for three years until, of course, the pandemic uh, hit us. Um, but we sit here now in t- late 2020. And I, I guess personally, I have a lot of sympathy for anyone in any business who is trying to prepare for the 1st of January 2021. Because, you know, while we've known we'll be leaving the European Union for over four years now, if you can believe it, you know, with little over two months to go, as you said, 60 odd days to go, it, it seems to most of us, it's pretty unclear still the exact terms on which we will be leaving 
How does any business prepare under such circumstances? Oh, I mean, when you put it like that, I mean, it is bonkers, isn't it, really? <laughs> um, and I guess if there's one thing that business hates, it's uncertainty and, yeah. and lack of clarity. And that's what we've had to manage for the last four years. Um, I suppose there's a couple of things we've tried to do to deal with that. Um, the first is start planning early. Um, and as a company, we started thinking about this, what, two to three years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm very glad we did that because I think with having to cope with coronavirus this year um, and all the uncertainty of that, we, we'd be in a really difficult place had we not planned earlier. I guess the second thing is very early on, we realized there were two key priorities for us. The first was about business continuity. Whatever happened with Brexit, and because we are a European-wide organization, mm. we needed to make sure that our operations continued operating. So that meant we had to get our procurement and our business planning right. The second priority was around customer service. So business continuity and customer service have really driven us in terms of how we prioritize and you know where we look for certainty and where we make assumptions. Yeah, and you mentioned there, Deirdre, that we are clearly a, a European-based business, you know, parts of us all around the world, of course, but we are a pan-European business, Tard Steel Europe. And, you know, one of the misconceptions we must put to bed, I guess, is that Brexit is a UK issue. It's going to affect every single part of our organisation, isn't it? Oh, absolutely right. Um, we we move one and a half million tonnes across the sea between the UK and the EU 27 every single year. Mm. Um, many of our customers are supplied by works both in Europe and in the UK. Um, so this will touch every single part of our business. Um, and the, the, you know, the team we've put together uh, to make the preparations reflects that. We've had to make sure that all, all of our interests not just in the main hubs uh, in South Wales and in the Netherlands, but all of our downstream businesses in France, Spain and Belgium, that we are managing what the impact on them as well. Yeah. And, and, and while there are many different aspects, and hopefully we'll cover them in the podcast today about the implications of Brexit, it's very difficult as a, as a business to get away from the, the, the fundamentals of trade isn't it? And, uh, you know, without asking you to nail your uh, colours to the mast, uh, particularly about whether there's going to be a free trade deal or not in, in, in a few weeks time, you know, if there isn't a free, a free trade deal, what are the implications for us, you know, quite simply? So very simply, we early on uh, decided that we would assume a hard border. Um, very early in the negotiations, it became clear that the idea of you know, the single market is, is gone, the single union is not there, and therefore a hard border would exist. Yeah. So our working assumption has been that we would have to manage full customs clearances in both directions, not just for our external sales to customers, but for the internal transfers that we move upstream to downstream. So mm -hmm. as a single planning assumption, that's what we put in place. And whether there is a deal or a no deal at the end of December, that will be the case. Now, if there is no deal, there will be undoubtedly a lot of disruption. Um, I, 
golly, at the moment, I'd find it very difficult to know exactly what that looks like. Yeah. What I do know is that I believe we will be prepared to manage the border piece. Um, and I think it's a really important piece to have got resolved. And, I, and I'm sure that will come as a lot of assurance to, to people. And uh, you know, I'm sure lots of people imagine, you know, queues up and down the motorways to, to Dover and Calais. And we um, uh, clearly you know, there may be some of that. and We hope that doesn't happen. But, you know, it's reassuring to hear that that we are well prepared for that. And I've made some assumptions are you know, preparing for the worst and hoping for the best, I guess you might call it. But, you know, to open people's minds up a little bit, you know, we talked here about, you know, internal transfers and steel for customers traveling you know, both ways across the channel. But it's not just steel uh, in its raw form that we need to worry about as an organization, isn't it? When we spoke to, you know, Kevin about automotive, Paul about construction, the level of inter-country trade in some of those supply chains is massive. You know, Kevin talked about components and systems traveling to and fro across Europe, and I'm sure it's the same in, in construction. You know, what sort of sentiment are you picking up from our customers and our supply chains and their confidence in in our part in helping them through this? There's no a big part of the work we've been doing has been engaging with all of our customers. Um, automotive are a big part of that, but construction, engineering, the packaging business, and there's no doubt that all of our customers are really concerned because they have the same level of uncertainty that we have around what a deal looks like and what a no deal might mean. What has become really clear is that the engagement we have with our customers means that we have a good understanding of how their businesses work, yeah. and their key processes are. Um, and your references to, to Kevin and Automotive are spot on. Um, some of our automotive customers have plants based all the way across Europe. Um, and then they're selling finished vehicles into and out of the UK. Yeah. We don't yet know what their tariff position is, what their rules of origin issues are going to be. And we join a lot of their discussions with government so that we can actually understand better what their issues are. So, I mean, you're right. A lot We, we can manage what we know and what impacts on the direct movements of our steel. But we're also having to get a really in-depth understanding of what the impact on our customers would be and then start to prepare for that. So being, I guess, being agile and being responsive and listening to our customers has been a really important part of the process. And it sounds listening to you, Deirdre, I kind of imagine that you would be hellishly busy between now and the 1st of January and then, you know, the, the deal is struck and, and and everything continues after the 1st of January and you can, and you can have a rest. Uh, from listening to you, that, that sounds like that's nowhere near the case and that, that your work on Brexit and your, your people who within the company are also working on it is, is actually going to go on for a, for a significant period of time after after the new year, isn't it? Yes, I think it will. I mean, if I let me start with what what are the things that we don't yet know that would really help us uh, to know by the end of uh, by the end of December? Um, and I guess there's three things. One is we still don't know what the tariff position will be for steel going from the UK into the EU, because the European Commission still hasn't put in place the quota mechanisms that exist uh, within within the European Union today. And, and that tariff position is really important to us. It could, it, if, if it's not resolved, it could result in a lot of cost. Mm. 
The second thing we're not sure on is the, you know, the Northern Ireland and the island of Ireland position and how that trade will work. And Ireland and Northern Ireland are very important markets for us. And then I guess the final bit is we don't have clarity on on our customer positions and, and the sort of rules of origin I talked about earlier. Now, we really need clarity on those issues by the end of December. But as we go into next year, you're right. There will be an awful lot of detail to be resolved to do with, you know, environmental standards. What will the UK put in place on those? Mm. Um, What will happen about product regulations? Um, Are there any issues around employment of people and employment licenses? So you're right. The job's not done come come the end of December. Um, And I think if there is a narrow deal struck, which I think is what we now expect, Mm. that will then be the foundation for ongoing negotiations into next year, much of which will have an impact on what we then need to do. So that's an interesting perspective, Deirdre, in that uh, I think many, many of us will imagine that kind of come the 1st of January, whatever deal to be done has been done. And then, you know, the UK is on its own and separate from Europe. But what you're saying is, that there's likely to be a, a, an extended transition period in many of these aspects where sort of between and betwixt uh, on some of these things like environmental legislations and recruitment and employment law and so forth, where there may not be uh, a, a definitive position uh, either side of the channel on, on how these things are going to work. I was kind of expecting it to all be done and dusted on the 1st of January, but that's not going to be the case. No, uh, you know, that would be nice, but it becomes increasingly clear that it's not going to be the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the I guess the other aspect to that is so there's lots of things we don't know um, that will be challenges to the business. I guess the other part of that then is we have to look at where might there be opportunities. So, you know, we should be looking as a business at what the opportunities are coming out of out of this separation as well. And I think that's a piece of work that we have started doing, mm. but will, by its nature, continue long into next year and beyond. Mm. And I guess some of the things I'm thinking about there are, you know, the UK government has stated it wants to look at, uh, you know, quickly striking trade deals, um, bilateral trade deals with countries outside Europe. The USA is a key one in that. Um now, we've got challenges in selling to the USA at the moment because of the uh, the Section 232 tariffs. But in a bilateral deal, we should be looking at, at changing the nature of that relationship and seeing that as a growth market for, for the UK. Um, so that's one area. I guess the second area in opportunity is, look, you know, we are a European wide company. We supply across the border and it is really important we continue to do that. But we're also the only premium strip supplier in the UK. Yeah. And therefore, uh, there is an opportunity to look at where we further optimise that because access to the UK market might well become more challenging for traders coming in from third markets. Mm. So that starts to open up opportunities for us, which, as I say, we're already starting to think about.
Yeah, and it is interesting. You know, we a lot of people see Brexit sort of a damage limitation, dealing with trades and tariffs and stuff. But those who, who are more optimistic about the opportunities for Brexit will say, well, there's our chance to you know, concentrate on our home market. Uh, you know, there's lots of business within the UK. You know, a, a UK for the UK, and and as you say, a European uh, operation for for mainland Europe. But you know, I guess part of that requires a company strategy decide that's what we're going to do and part of that requires on maybe the government having the the freedom maybe released from european uh, regulations to to make such decisions uh, you know i saw this week that the gmb union were berating the government for spending 23 million pound on steel from overseas uh, so many people that might seem like a huge amount of money but maybe it's not in the grand scheme of things um but but on the other hand last week the government announced they doubled the use of UK-made steel in government projects. You know, where are the government? Are they, have they been doing the best given the, the the handcuffs of the European Union and now they're free to do more? Or, or, or could they have done more and, and should they be doing more? Oh, this is such a tricky area. I, if I'm honest, the UK government has always taken a very, a very sort of strict line on state aid provisions and therefore has been very reluctant to you know, have any anything that might look like a by British campaign. Um, and yet, if I look at our counterparts in Germany or France or the Netherlands, would you expect to see a major project like, you know, a HS2 equivalent or a, a nuclear power station? Would mm. you expect that to be built in, in any of those countries with anything other than locally sourced steel? I, d- I don't think we would. Um, so, and it's not about breaching state aid guidelines. But I think it is about where there is a will, there is a way. Mm. Um, now, agreement is still to be reached on how state aid rules will work um, after the end of the transition period. So we'll see what that looks like. But in the meantime, the current government and the prime minister himself has made some really strong statements about supporting locally produced steel for um, public projects yeah you know boris johnson has said you know he he would expect to see uk steel makers at the front of the queue when it comes to procurement for major projects mm. um and you know nadim zahawi said recently buying british where possible is for the good of the country yeah so if the will is there we will work with government to make sure that we can land that win given that there is a pipeline of steel in public projects, which equates to around half a million tonnes a year over the next 10 years. I think it's probably even higher than that in some years, probably as high as seven or 800,000 tonnes. So we should be looking at how we can work together to make sure that we increase that proportion of UK produced steel into public projects. Yeah. Why, why, I mean, why is it important? It's important because it supports jobs in our industry, but also the supply chains that support us. Um, and it also means that we are not importing carbon from countries where perhaps their regulations are less rigorous than our own. Yeah. So there's an economic and community benefit but there's also a significant environmental benefit as well. Now, that's a win for a government that wants to, you know, have a levelling up agenda across the country, as well as 
clean and green growth in the economy. Yeah, and it sounds great, doesn't it? And I guess people may maybe shouldn't get too excited about the sort of seven or eight hundred thousand tons a year from Tata Steel's perspective, because I guess not all of that is is ours. And I know you uh, represent UK Steel as well as as many other aspects of your role, Deirdre. But uh, you know, there's, there's Liberty Steel, there's British Steel, so there's other parts of the steel industry in the UK who are also part of that that uh, that pie, if you like, the government procurement pie. No, and you're quite right. I mean, the 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 UK steel market is around nine million tons in total. About four right. million of that is, you know, steel that our 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 sister, you know, companies like British Steel and Liberty and others will 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 sell into. Um, so you've got about uh, you've got about five million tons, which is strip based, which is which is clearly the market that we sell into. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we will not secure all of that. Um, but what we should be looking to secure is a much bigger portion of the, the the market that is paid for out of the public purse. So HS2 is a very good example of that. Um, and we've been doing a lot of joint lobbying work through UK Steel um, to make sure that we, we join up as an industry um, and help each other on a project like HS2, which really should be primarily uh, supplied from UK local steel. Yeah, it's a complex picture though, isn't it, Deirdre? And people should not clearly pin their hopes on uh, our our company strategy being aligned to a local supply strategy because, you know, we're a company that that is here to make money, to reinvest, to support jobs in the community and so forth. But to make money, that may not be necessarily business in the UK, may it? You look at the success of Colorcoat recently and, and how successful it's been in Northern Europe, especially. You know, if, if, if we said, right, you've got to focus all your business on the UK, they'd say, well, it's going to impact our profitability because that's not necessarily where the best mix of products are. So, so it's got to be a real balancing act, hasn't it? Oh, it really has. Yeah, it really has to be. Um, and one of the, you know, one of the real strengths of the UK business is where we have these you know, highly differentiated branded products um, that are not produced anywhere else. So, you know, we have some products from our UK mills where we're exporting, what, 40% or more in any one year um, because the demand for those products, actually not just within Europe, um, but globally. So, yeah, getting that balance right between making sure we are satisfying our domestic market, but also, you say, following the money, yeah, uh, with strong exports is really important. But in a sense, that also fits well with the UK government agenda, which is around, you know, growth of the domestic economy, but also then forging a global trade policy, um, which means that we can make the most of profitable exports from the UK. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it is a hugely complex topic. And there clearly you know many more arms to this and uh, than people might have expected and i know um then your work in recent years you've you've been including people from all different aspects of the business you know not just sort of commercial teams and marketing teams and the uh, you know be the finance people the logistics people i mean there's so many other aspects that brexit will impact on our business probably almost everything in our business you mentioned some of them earlier about you know environmental standards and e- employment law you know, what's the extent of the the breadth of the work that you've been encompassing over the last two years? Oh, golly, um, we we really have had to sort of take the lid off off our business right from where we buy raw materials 
through our manufacturing processes to the point of end sale. So we've had 11 work streams um, involved in looking at this. Um, some have been right down the middle of it. So the logistics team, the customs and logistics team, who've done such a fabulous job on both sides of the channel to get us into a point where, where we're well prepared. But I can, you know, I should not forget that there have been the environmental looking at the reach legislation and making sure that we've got all our registrations right for that. Yeah. We then had to look at how does this all fit with our business planning processes so that we are feeding in our preparations into our business as usual. Um, we've gone through looking at, you know, our intellectual property uh, registrations and other issues we need to cope with that. So um, it, it really has touched every single part of our business and every function of our business. And that's the and that's the governance process we've had to work with. But increasingly, it's putting lots of pressure on people. And clearly, lots of people are working at home now when this is a time when, you know, we might have been in together in a room with a big white board saying, right, what are the key issues? So we've actually had to find different ways of working as well um, because of the circumstances that that, are, that exist externally. Yeah, and it's an interesting perspective I'd like to just briefly touch on. And, uh, you know, with the pandemic, uh, lots of people will say, you know, the pandemic has created you know, barriers at the borders and, and issues with trade for, for different reasons from a sort of health and security uh, uh, reasons. Do you think we've had a sort of a dry run in terms of what some of those barriers and how we might deal with logistical issues and so forth? Do you think we had a dry run because of the pandemic almost by accident or has it been a completely different scenario? Oh, gosh, I guess I guess the pandemic has 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 put a lot of things into perspective. Um, and we've had to uh, both as a company and I guess in across all geographies, have had to really think about what are the priorities and how do we manage those priorities. Um, and in many ways, I'd almost say, I mean, you know, a year ago, Brexit was the the huge challenge, wasn't it? It was it was it was the thing everyone was talking about. Yeah. What's really important now is people's health, um, people's well-being, um, and then there's the economic impact as well. And then within that, we're managing Brexit. So whether the, the the pandemic was a dry run, I, 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 I don't know. I'm glad we'd done as much preparation for Brexit before the pandemic rather than yes. trying to start it during it. Um, but I think it has put Brexit into perspective. And as such, I think arguably it's, it's kind of focused our minds in a helpful way. Although, frankly, I would rather not have had to deal with it. <laughs> yes, wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all? And it's interesting, you know, you talked about people all across the organisation having been involved in a planning, working extremely hard, extremely long hours uh, and still much work to do. But there's a huge number of people who, who won't have touched it. They won't have been involved yet. You know, lots of our operational teams, lots of our functional teams are sort of more on business as usual. You know, what is it they can do to help the company get through the next you know, three months, six months, 12 months as we go through Brexit? Is it is it a case of do what you do best or is there something I need to concentrate more on or focus on? A couple of things with that. The first thing is, you know, we, we have prepared as well as we can based on the knowledge that we have. But none of us believe that we have thought of everything. 
Um, and therefore, one thing I would ask everybody to think about is in their day-to-day -day work, if they're seeing something where they think, oh, I wonder if we thought of that, or they hear something from a customer or a supplier, or indeed a contractor, where they think, oh, I wonder if they thought of that. Mm. Get in touch with me, um, flag it, because we, you know, we won't have thought of everything. And then the second piece, I think, is just remember that, that keeping our, work, our operations moving and our customers satisfied are our key priorities. Um, Brexit is one more business problem that we have to deal with. Um, but if we keep those two priorities in mind and we all do what is within our control to deliver those two things, then we stand a chance that together we can get it right. And that and that sounds like a fantastic place to leave it for now. You know, I could go on for hours talking to you, Deirdre, about anything, frankly. But this is a fascinating topic. I know, you know, in some aspects, we've only really scratched the surface. But, you know, even in half an hour, I've learned a lot uh, more about the topic. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure our listeners to the pod will have too. Uh, it's been fantastic to uh, chew the fat with you again, Deirdre. Uh, thanks so much for taking uh, time out to share how we're managing as you say, what has now become only the second biggest topic this year. Um, but I'm really very grateful for you joining us. Thank you very much, Tim. So we're now a little under an hour closer to D-Day, or maybe that should be B-Day, or even Independence Day, as some would have it. Let's hope this podcast isn't out of date by the time it's broadcast, although I guess none of us will be holding our breaths on that one. It's a tremendous piece of work by so many people across the company just to get us to this place. And yet the outcome is yet to be determined and there is still much water to flow under the bridge. For what Deirdre shared today and for what some of our customers are saying about us, we are about as well prepared as we can be for any likely eventualities. But as the pandemic has shown, who knows what will happen next? If today's podcast made you prick up your ears and got your steel industry juices flowing, why not subscribe to Steelcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from? You can listen to previous episodes from around the UK and hear from more proud, passionate steelworkers. See you next time when we delve into another part of one of the UK's longest standing, most essential and best loved industries.